change is the only constant in every aspect of our lives, be it how we work, how we live, how we learn. It forces us to make the right decisions without the choice of looking back at history and conventions to know what's right. I am Vikram Baskaran, and this is Chargebee's Champions of Change podcast, where we talk to changemakers who've walked before us, built businesses on first principles, and unearth their tips and tricks to identify change and turn that into opportunity. Remember, you're just one decision away from being a change maker. Today, we have with us Jody McDermott, a passionate and data-driven product executive with 20 plus years of experience in digital technology analytics and product management, and the CPO at Dude Solutions. And before joining Dude Solutions, Jody worked in uh, both startups and established firms, including Gartner, Comscore, and USA Today. In her career, Jody has taken products from idea to launch, from launch to scale, and scale to massive growth, including M&As and expansions. So today, I'm hoping that we're going to be able to dive a bit into her passion for building tech products, using data to drive meaningful user experiences. So welcome to the show, Jody. Thank you. Thanks for having me today. So before we get started, can you just uh, talk to us a little bit about Dude Solutions and specifically what your role is at Dude Solutions as the CPO? Sure. You know, as chief product officer, my responsibility is uh, really over product management, user experience and design. I also have responsibilities for our energy business unit and uh, a few other parts of, of the organization that come together. Uh, my job really is to, to use our product uh, portfolio to drive growth. That's the main objective. And yeah, that's really interesting, right? Using the portfolio to drive growth, because uh, especially in a product org, being a product leader means, you know, you have to be a strategic partner that's, that's driving really long-term growth. And that's kind of your speciality. Your speciality comes down to aligning product strategy, not just with where the organization has to be today, but where it needs to be multiple quarters down the road. So let's talk a little bit about that. How do you identify and drive this kind of alignment and get this kind of visibility into where you need to be, say, a year, two years, five years from now? So we have a strategic planning process that we follow at our organization. Parts of it have been developed in the product uh, organization and, and parts of it have come from our strategy team and of course our CEO. We really start off the, the year and I think of it as a cycle. I have my team go through and do competitive analysis. We refresh our, our competitive intel a few times a year, but we do a big refresh right at the beginning. So we really understand the landscape of where we're currently operating. And from there, we start to dive in and look at uh, some product market fit exercises. And those exercises help us understand where do we have really good product market fit today? Because we are a mature organization. And what do we need to do to expand? And when I think about expand, it's going up market, increasing our average order value, helping our sales team increase their win rate when they're going out in front of a prospect and also adding you know, additional feature functionality and opportunities for our clients to improve retention and client satisfaction. We then use that to drive into the next stage of the process. And I, and I know this feels very high level because we're not talking about agile development right now. We're talking about strategic planning. We use that to drive into, all right, what are, what are those projects, those growth projects that we can be working on to drive growth for the company? You always need to have parts of your portfolio that are working on maintenance of your technology stack, maintenance for your clients and your users, uh, sustainability, you know, sustained work, if you will, 
and then growth. So you need to think about it as a budget. That's how I think about it. And so uh, we go into the process of looking at what are those big things that can drive growth in our client base and help us even move beyond you know, the current clients that we have today. And we do you know, basic analysis around that of what's the market, what's the return on investment for investing in those particular projects. And then ultimately, it helps us understand across our portfolio, where should we be spending our time over the course of the next year or two? Now, layered in with that is also a level of strategic planning that our corporate development team does. Looking at the big markets, which verticals should we be operating in? Our company goes to market in education, local government, manufacturing, and healthcare. And so we're also having to blend across those different vertical opportunities to thread our roadmaps ultimately. But our job is just like a a financial analyst puts together a a portfolio of stocks and bonds to try to drive the highest ROI. I think of what we do is is being very similar to that. We have to put together a product portfolio that's going to protect the product base, but also help grow the entire portfolio and ultimately the company. Amazing, amazing. So when it comes down now, this is this is this is brilliant from a from a high level point of view. Now I want to get into a little bit more of the details. In fact, I want to get all the way down to the hardest part of the details, which is, you know, every time you 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 come up with, all right, so this is this is where we want to be, and this is where we need to strategically go. And there are going to be internal differences, especially when you're when you're trading on something super vague, like all right, so what might our customers need X years from now? So how do you navigate through these? And as, as, as a product leader, you know, a huge part of your role in defining the strategic roadmap comes down to navigating through these internal differences and actually setting out, all right, so here's the one version of truth that we're all going to be aligned with and, and running towards. So can you talk about any examples where you had to bridge, say, what sales wants versus what current customers are asking versus what you need to be doing for your future goals? So I'd say that's the that's the dilemma of the day-to-day product manager. Every product manager out there, regardless if you're at the beginning of your career or you're at the pinnacle, on a day-to-day basis, you're saying no to someone, but you're also trusted to say it with the most information you possibly can have. And you know, one of the things I, I strongly believe in is that it, it is a privilege to be in the product organization. People are trusting you with a lot of information and that you will take all of that information and reduce it down to making the best decisions of priorities of what's going to have the best impacts with the clients. And so, you know, I always challenge my team and I have been challenged myself across my career uh, being a product manager that you've got to make sure that you really listen. You listen to your internal stakeholders and you listen to your external stakeholders and that you're talking to clients on a very regular basis. And that's not just once a month. It's you know multiple times a week. And if you're working on a deep discovery project, it might be all day that you're scheduling calls. But that you're really listening and understanding what is the biggest problem we need to solve for. And then again, you can't forget that you have to take care of the care and feeding of the product itself and the, the, the existing uh, users and clients that are there, not just driving for you know, the top line growth, growth or the next big thing. So you know, how, how do we do that? We make sure that we have a very you know, data-driven approach, but also uh, one that includes thorough discovery 
And when I talk about discovery, it means no hands-on keyboards. You're just talking to clients, you're doing research, you're doing market research, you're making sure you really hear the voice of the customer. And that when we get down to the you know, brass tacks of what's the capacity of the team, what's the velocity of the squads that are going to be working on different features, et cetera, then you're getting down to prioritizing those specific things that are going to solve the business problem. Because at the end of the day, you're driving business outcomes. And those outcomes are either things that solve a, a problem for a client or bring them absolute delight in the way that they navigate and use your products. I'm laughing here because uh, I just got reminded of this quote from uh, The Godfather, which says, uh, you cannot say no to the people you love, not often. And when you do, it has to sound like a yes, or you have to make them say no, right? That is so true. It's so true. <laughs> you know, when, when, when there's something that, you know, we know a really important client wants, uh, or, or we have a sales team who, you know, our sales team is amazing. It, I hate saying no. And, and a lot of times you are trying to find a, say, find a way to say yes. And sometimes you do have certain things that you got to have a win on. And uh, you do sometimes thread things into your roadmap because there's a reason you need to get it done. And sometimes it's a morale booster. Sometimes it's that one you know in, important client that maybe doesn't pay the most, but they're marquee and you, you know you can't lose them. So there's trade-offs for sure. So um, now you've, you've, of course, all of this changes based on which stage of growth the organization is, right? So between, and, and you've, you've, you've played across the spectrum. Uh, so what changes in how you define and scale your product roadmap at say the pre-product market fit versus the post-product market fit and you know, for an organization at scale? So what really, what, what changes in how you view the game as a CTO based on the stage of the organization? So when you're building a product and you're in that very early phase and you don't have product market fit, you've got to test and fail really fast or test and win and keep moving. And those are the best times to put together you know, a team that swarms a problem and you have a tight team that's, that's uh, iterating really quickly. And your goal is to have a, a trusted set of, of clients and users, and even some that'll just maybe push back on you all the time until you delight them, right? To find that product market fit. What must be true in this MVP um, for you to have five, eight you know, clients that would be willing to sign up, pay for it, and also be great references? And so, you know, at that point in time, you're iterating really fast. Uh, your sprints are shorter, your releases are, are, are tighter, and you're, you're trying to just push out feature functionality and make modifications based on a lot of feedback really quickly from a small group of people. So I think that, you know, that pre-product market fit phase is determining what really must be true for MVP, where you could start to take it out into the market and sell it. You will then get really quick feedback when your sales team starts selling it and clients start asking for more and more and you're threading that. Perfect example, we launched a product uh, several months ago and it was MVP to get it out the door. And now we have a lot of feedback coming in of things that must be true in the roadmap. And we have a product team that's working quickly to talk to those clients and those users, hear what the pain point is they need to solve for and prioritize how quickly they can get it into the roadmap. So, you know, that's, that's a little bit on that pre, you know, product market fit. I think when you have really good solid product market fit, and we have some products where we have, you know, we have thousands of customers on some of our products. 
uh, and we are an enterprise SaaS company uh, that you know sells into you know schools, universities, governments, etc. And so you know some of our clients are, are pretty big, and they use all aspects of our product, and, uh, and and it has a really solid footprint. In cases like that, that's where you get into that mature model of really thinking about the capacity of your team and your roadmap to say we've got to make sure we're maintaining. We're sustaining, and that sustaining is new feature functionality, client satisfaction, making sure we're taking care of our existing clients and keeping them happy, but also for clients and new prospects, adding those growth opportunities that that maybe cross-sell and upsell opportunities for your company on top of the existing client base. And so your mind shift, your, your mindset starts to shift a little bit, really thinking about that product-led growth. And so growth can be obviously in the small projects that you're doing and new products that you're launching to find product market fit. But that growth can also be, how do you upsell or cross-sell something onto a base that has 10,000 clients in it? That's a huge opportunity. 1% penetration, 10% penetration, 25%. You're really quickly going in and it's much easier to go and cross-sell or upsell a client than it is to go land that new client flag or that new logo. So I want to circle back on something that you've said at least a couple of times in our session today, right? Which is these, these two aspects of sustainability and growth. And particularly at that, at that scale phase uh, that we spoke about uh, right now, there's, you know, when you're, even when you're planning your roadmap, you need to be worrying about both of these, right? There are, there are certain aspects that are for your, you know, sustaining your current client base, certain things, which are, which are growth opportunities. So, What's, what's the, uh, how, how do you, how do you define a balance? How do you, first off, how do you even categorize whether something that you're investing in is towards a sustainability effort or a growth effort? And then how do you go in and say, all right, so this is this, how much of my, uh, how much of, I, I, I want to invest in A versus B? So one of the ways that I think about, so th- there's, there's a tactical way to look at this and there's a strategic way to look at it from, from the tactical standpoint, as a product manager, I really get my team to think about the velocity of the squad or squads that they work with on their product as, as a budget, right? We all get paid every, every two weeks or once a month. And then you've got to pay for your car and where you live and food and all that kind of stuff. And you have choices that you make with the budget that you have, right? So when I think about sprint planning or release planning, et cetera, or even macro annual planning, I think of that budget as a 70-30% split as a starting point. And let's keep in mind all things are negotiable. So 70% goes to the product team, 30% goes straight back to the technology team. And that the technology or engineering team needs to be making sure, you know, where do they need to optimize scale, performance, uh, you know, refactor things, whatever, whatever work they might have that they're doing. And there's always work that's happening, especially for a 20-year-old SaaS company like ourselves, you know new technologies that have to be refactored, et cetera. But on that 70%, we then look at that and say, well, let's break that down into a couple of streams. Uh, we've got you know, the, the sustainability stream, and I'll keep it simple, the sustainability stream and the growth stream. We always want to take 30% and push it towards growth and then 40% towards sustainability. At least that's the ideal state. Sustainability is a place, though, that a lot of product managers can get stuck in. It's that hamster wheel, that feature functionality, feature functionality, and you're just 
pumping out little incremental things over and over and over again um, to be able to, you know, uh, meet your current client needs. And they're, they're small, they're small stories. They might even be some epics, but they're, you know, you're just feeding and caring for your client base. That growth piece is what's really going to drive um, increase in, you know, your average order value and things like that. And, and allow you to expand uh, your overall share of wallet with, uh, with a client that you might have. And it might be that thing that helps you move up market. Like for us, it might be moving up to a larger population of, of local governments. It might be moving into a much larger school district or a larger size state university versus a smaller college or university based off of, uh, of population size. So you also talked a little bit about, you know, how do you define what is growth versus sustainability? And it's interesting. It's, it can be a fine line, right? Because uh, when we go about looking at uh, epics or those large pieces of work that we can put on our roadmap, uh, we want to look at a couple of different metrics. Does it increase retention or reduce churn? Does it deliver table stakes or differentiator, or does it increase revenue, overall revenue, and allow us to push into new markets? So when I think about the sustainability work, uh, there's pieces of it that can be both you know, reducing churn. You want clients to stay with you because they want to see new things coming out in the product. And they want to also know that you're hitting those table stakes items that just need to be there, right? And when you're differentiating, great. So you can have things that hit those different areas of the, the spectrum, and they're really just delighting your current client base and making sure that they're retained. And those are good. And those are important things to have in your roadmap. When you talk about growth, for us, we're talking about something that either materially changes the, uh, the average order value because we can raise prices or we can develop a skew within our product portfolio that allows us to charge a premium because it has additional modules, et cetera, inside of that skew, or you're adding on some additional new module that's an add-on to all the SKUs that you might already have in your portfolio. And so when you think about growth, you're talking about something that materially changes the game. Your sales team's getting enabled on it. They're going out. There's a SKU sitting in Salesforce if we've got to get really specific, uh, right? Or it's getting bundled into an existing SKU and we're doing a price change. So when I think about growth, those are uh, really the, the levers if you have to break it down. Uh, there's other ways to look at it too. You might be able to take an existing product into a brand new market that you could not sell and win in before. That would count as growth as well. So any one of those elements, but you know, I think any, any product managers thinking about how they productize and have that differentiation between um, their product SKUs, right? For us, we have core, professional, and enterprise. And most of our products have an offering in each one of those columns, if you will, if you're, if you're thinking about a, you know, a price book or a price card. When you're adding and you're delivering value in each one of those areas, uh, you're either retaining the clients that are in there or you're, you're working to really move them from one column to the next so you can upsell them, or you're expanding again with that modular approach or the creation of a new SKU. I don't know, Enterprise Plus, Professional Plus. Uh, we certainly have a few of those in, in our price book as well when we go out to market that allows us to expand into areas that we might not have been as successful in as before. 
Excellent. And so one, again, a recurring theme that I keep uh, understanding from you, and I think I think from most of the other product leaders that we've spoken to as well, is you know at the end of the day, your 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 roadmap and all of your plan is going to be fluid, especially as you're going through scale. It's going to be fluid. You know this old school model, this waterfall model of all right. So let's define it, let's spec it, let's build this, let's launch it, and then let's sell it. I don't I don't think that that really makes a lot of sense anymore. And that's great. That's great because you know you can look for what's changing in the market and constantly keep adapting and course correcting yourself. But it's also kind of scary because now you have this additional, you know, new problem of how do you identify these these course correction markers? So from your perspective, what kind of internal or external markers do you look for when you're looking at all right? So you know what, we might need to go back to the drawing board and probably tweak things a little bit or update things a little bit. That's an easy one. We can just talk about COVID. <laughs> so, so for us, uh, you know, we have we have over twelve thousand clients, and we have probably about six thousand plus schools across the United States who all closed down during COVID. I think we all remember going into that lockdown mode. So, you know, for us, we planned out our whole year. We had a whole game plan of what we were doing. Uh, with our strategic plan, our product teams had built out their roadmaps that they were aligned and levered up to our strategic plan. And we were ready to, to get going and execute on the game plan. Certainly, you have those small things that come up and there's a change in the market that you have to pivot and modify for. And no roadmap is completely locked for a whole year. That would be unrealistic. And in most cases, we come up to every quarter and we think of it as a 13-week sprint. And we say, okay, what do we need to do differently based off of what we know right now that we wouldn't have known 12 months ago when we were planning out a multi-year plan? And then we modify for that. We may pull items in and accelerate them up. We may push other items out because they're not as needed and we need to create space for those things that are more important. When COVID hit, for I think every product person out there, it, a, a complete fog layer came in of not knowing what was going to happen. And very quickly, your annual plan went out the window and you needed to look right in front of you. What can we do right now? For us at, at, at Dude Solutions, we got on the phone and we started talking to uh, facilities maintenance uh, managers and directors at the state level, at the local level of those who were responsible for schools and, and just, hey, first of all, how are you doing? How are you doing? What can we do to help you? What can we do inside of our products to help you? Um, one of our flagship products is really about asset management and work and order management. And so, you know, we said, what can we do to help you? It was checklists for how to shut down a school. It was checklists for making sure that when you reopened the school, the water was safe to drink that was sitting in the pipes for the last three months. So the things that we needed to do around both preventive maintenance, reactive maintenance, work orders, you know, the bread and butter of the people that are walking buildings that you don't always, you know, you don't always think about. They're the unsung heroes. They're the people that are behind the scenes, making sure that all the operations work, just want to do the best work of their lives. That's what those people, they're salt of the earth and they're just trying to do the best work of their lives. We shifted our roadmap to make sure that we were supporting them. What did they need to do to be able to make sure that they could either shut down their schools, reopen their schools, or in some cases, redeploy all of their school buses to, in, I remember in the state of West Virginia, they were using this, the school bus fleet to move the National Guard around the state. 
and to make sure that they were mobilizing and getting meals out to students in need that, that didn't have you know, their daily school lunch that might be the best meal that that child has in any given any given day. And so, you know, for us, it became very human of, you know, refactoring our roadmap and making sure that we were getting, you know, our clients what they needed. Now, that, that's just but one example. We serve a lot of different sectors. Healthcare was another one. You know, all of a sudden, you know, every hospital was going into crisis mode of managing patients coming in, and they still are, especially in other parts of the world. And uh, understanding how to help them uh, quickly and what we could do to add value became the mission of the company. That's actually really interesting. And I'd, I'd love to go deeper into how did, how did you so quickly, how were you able to get plugged into what the, you know, the, the pain points of the frontline uh, people, how did, you, how did you get into that and then start solving for it from a product point of view? We got on the phone really fast. I mean, this this goes back to product management 101. You need to be close to your clients. They can't be at arm's length. So, you know, I in our company, we also have an executive sponsorship program where um, each one of the executives on the executive team, not just the chief product officer, has a, a portfolio of clients that we talk to on a regular basis. And we just listen to what their needs are. And when you establish a relationship because you kick off those phone calls with, Hey, where in the country are you today? And how's the weather? And you know what, what's happening where you live? You establish relationships with people, and then when it's time to make it, you know, a change, or you need to find out what's actually happening where they are. It's very human, and you you call them up and you're addressing them by their first name because you know them. And so those relationships are really important. It's something that we value incredibly at Dude Solutions. Our client base is amazing. And it's it's one of the deep parts of our culture uh, for how close we are to our clients. I think I think that's the that's the coolest takeaway. Just get on the phone. Um, just get on the phone and talk to the people whose problem you're trying to solve for instead of just you know imagining the problems in your head. And it's it's amazing that. That philosophy is as true for uh, when, you know, even if you're post-IPO and you're like at massive scale and growth, and it's just as true if you're in, you know, pre-product market fit, trying to get your first uh, 10 customers and trying to get references out of them, just get on the phone and talk. Just get on the phone and talk. And of course, moving into, again, your role at Dude Solutions, you're more than a product leader. Of course, as the CPO, you are deeply involved in strategic decisions, including M&As. So what's your thought process when you're thinking about a merger or, or an acquisition option? Do you have a kind of framework to see how well an offering might probably enable your, your larger strategy or what kind of gaps it might fill out in your offerings? Absolutely. Absolutely. So this is one part of my job that I absolutely love. And, and I think it's also a great career uh, development area for, for a lot of product leaders, those that might be at the director or VP level at an organization. I'll just first start off by saying it's one area to get experience in, even if you're just riding along and listening and watching the process, um, because it, it truly is one of the biggest parts of my job. We're a very acquisitive company. So Dude Solutions, is, we're owned by private equity. Um, we're over $100 million in revenue, and we are growing both organically and inorganically, as we call it. Our in, inorganic growth, we do by acquisition. And so when you are out looking to grow um, via acquisition, there's different, way, different product 
thesis that can happen. One, you have a product gap. And that happened about a year ago. We had a product gap and we really needed to find another solution in the market. And we knew that buying was going to be much faster than trying to build. Although we were starting to run both in parallel. Because just because you want to go buy something to fill a product gap doesn't mean it's available. Doesn't mean it's on the market. I like to sort of um, uh, use the analogy of dating and that, you know, you can get out there and date, but it doesn't mean you're going to find what you're looking for, right? Or it doesn't mean that there's a match between both parties. And that can be based off of price, strategic fit, another bidder. There's a lot of, of things that factors that can come involved in that. So, you know, when we're looking for any type of acquisition, I'm always looking for that Venn diagram. You have, the, you have two circles in a Venn diagram. And when they're completely separate, the questions that I'm asking myself are, okay, how would this fit into our portfolio? Where would we find synergies? Usually when you're buying another company, uh, you're fine, you want to look at uh, both the, the uh, you know, additional top-line revenue that you're bringing in to add to your overall you know, portfolio and the, the financials of the company. You're also looking at the profitability of the company. And for us, we specifically look at EBITDA or earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. And you want to see where you can have synergies. So will we be able to grow the top line faster to expand the EBITDA margin? Or are there overlapping you know, functions in the organization where you know, we, we don't need two people doing the same function and we'll be able to consolidate roles? A harder part of the acquisition process, but it's part of it. So, But from the product strategy piece of it, I'm sitting there looking at, okay, for a Venn diagram, if there's no overlap, all right, how are we going to integrate this? Do we have the same buyer? Do we have a way that we would integrate the products together, that this will be a good cross-sell or upsell motion um, for our sales team to go out and sell? Can we sell it into our base, right? That cross-sell motion is huge. You want to go back to the clients you already know the ones we pick up the phone call all the time and you want to sell them something new, much easier to sell to somebody you know than somebody you don't know. So I, I look for that overlap. If it completely overlaps and it's the exact same thing and we're not going to get anything new from a product strategy perspective, you know that can sometimes be a flag as well, not always a positive one because we're thinking, okay, what's new that we're getting for this acquisition? We're going to pay all this money and are we just getting clients? Or are we getting new capability? You know, the ideal scenario in many cases is that you have enough of an overlap of those two circles, one circle being dude solutions, the other circle being the, you know, the acquisition target where you can build out a product strategy to say, if we acquire this company, here are the products in the portfolio that we would want to integrate with. And here's the hypothesis of how we would do that and what value it would bring to our existing client base as well as what new opportunities the two companies combined will bring to the market. So there's a lot of different pieces that go into that. You know, we have conversations with uh, with companies all the time, and you know, I, I, I have kind of a standard process that I start to go through of wanting to get a demo of the products, understand where they fit in the market, who they sell to, who is the buyer. So if if, if it's a similar buyer that we have, that sounds great. We can put the product in the bag of our salespeople and they can go in and cross-sell it to the same buyer. Fantastic. Um, and then where, where really are the opportunities for innovation um, and bringing the products together that could create something new or 
um, drive innovation on our roadmap in a way that we're buying, acquiring and integrating and uh, not having to build it ourselves, which can help us get innovation to our clients faster in some cases. Phenomenal. So uh, coming down to the last question of our uh, session today, Jody, I want to I wanna move to the people aspect of being a CPO. And across organizations, one of, one of the biggest difficulties a lot of product leaders face is in creating a product mindset across other functions so that, you know, the product team is actually enabled to, to, to kind of drive these kind of moonshots and big growth opportunities. So how do, you, how do you get everyone in the organization or as many people in the organization to actually shift in and adopt a product mindset that's, that's actually going to enable a product leader to get their job done in the best way possible? Well, it, if you're not starting with that point to begin with, it can sometimes take a long time. Uh, it's educating the organization on what product actually is, how it's different from the engineering organization that is building the product. Although we are very, very close partners. I like to say that I have my CTO right at my shoulder. We succeed together. We, we have setbacks together. Um, it's really about evangelizing and getting out there and helping people understand here's the, here's the vision for where we're going. And, and what we want to be and bring together over the course of, of the next, you know, three to five years. And then here's the strategy for how we're going to get there. And it, so it's, it's getting out of there. It's speaking to the different functions. It's helping them understand what product's role is. Uh, some functions have never been exposed to product or really understand the craft or the discipline of, of what product is. And then it's including them in the process. So when we go through our strategic planning process and we're talking about competitive intel, we pull in our sales counterparts and we make sure that they can look at the, the landscape maps we put together and the competitive intel grids and they have a say in, in it. They, they're providing information. They're out on the front lines. When we get into looking at where we have good product market fit and why we win and where we don't win, they're the best sources of information to help with that. And then when you get into talking about what are the growth opportunities for where we can go? Their ear is very helpful for understanding what have they heard out there when they're talking to prospects that we either don't have or we're on the cusp of getting there and we just need to get XYZ over the finish line, right? So you get your sales team on board. Um, that flows through to your client services organization that's talking to those clients post-sale. And in making sure they understand how to use the product and use it in a way that really solves their needs. And your support team being delighted of, you know, talking to clients and users on a regular basis that, that need help. You bring people along because they understand that product can be an enabler. It can also be uh, inhibited if things aren't going well. And so um, delighting your internal stakeholders is, is just as important as delighting your users and your clients. And so, you know, we think about it in that way. Um, so there's the process again of strategic planning and bringing your your you know stakeholders through that process to support you. Finance also gets in there to help with ROI um, in in business cases and helping us understand how we make sure that we're making good financial decisions for where we're going to deploy resources um, to drive those return on investments, which ultimately is bookings and retention, et cetera. But you know, also your your sales team and your, your client facing teams, bringing them along the process, bringing them in frequently to understand what's going on with roadmaps, 
I open up Q&A sessions with each of our sales teams uh, quarterly of our different verticals to just let them ask questions, bring them, you know, a little bit of inside baseball. You know, why did we make a decision a certain way or why are we not shipping something faster? So it's, uh, it's making sure that you're communicating and you're getting out there and you're answering questions, you're educating uh, and you're bringing them along in the process. They can be some of your biggest advocates and they also know how to stay right on you if, uh, if you know, there's something that needs to be going better. Phenomenal. And that brings us to the end of our session. And it was incredibly insightful. I, in fact, in fact, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm waiting for, the, uh, for us to clean up this podcast and give it another hearing myself because there's so many, so many super cool insights that, uh, you know, I think beyond product, it makes sense for pretty much any function or a function head within a product organization to, you know, drive back into how they're planning about their future, how, how they use uh, data-driven decisions. And yeah, it's, it's, it's just a phenomenal bunch of frameworks and rubrics to, to just you know, streamline your thought processes. So thank you so much for um, uh, having this conversation with us uh, here today, Jody. I, I enjoyed it a lot. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, it was wonderful to be a part of uh, ChargeBeast Champions of Change. The, the panels were fun. The speakers were phenomenal. And um, I just wish you all the success that uh, the conference itself was a success. And I'm sure you are all hoping to be in person next year as we all are uh, for our user conferences. So thank you so much for having me today. 